If you ask most people what they know about food in ancient Rome, you'll probably hear something about the lead. The prevailing myth is that Romans drank from lead cups, and lead poisoning explains some of the erratic and violent behavior of some of the Caesars. It's almost certainly not true. Well, I mean, yes, Romans drank water from aqueducts that were often lead-lined to prevent leaks, and they drank from cups that did, yes, sometimes have a lead component, but they didn't tend to drink from straight lead cups. What they did do was boil their wine down into a syrup called defrutum in a lead vessel. The citric acid from the wine reacts with the lead to make something that we call sugar of lead. That is to say, a very sweet substance that is, as the name suggests, mostly lead. If anything gave people chronic lead poisoning in Rome, it was drinking wine sweetened with diffrutum. A guy named James Grout has actually done the math on this, and he figures the Romans in Rome were drinking two-thirds of a liter of sweet wine a day, which is the kind of thing that would make a modern health inspector faint, frankly. And when they came out of their swoon, they would send you to the hospital. The fact is, Romans don't need lead cups to wind up with lead poisoning. They were drinking the stuff. Oh, and for the record, most of the aqueducts going into the city of Rome had a calcium incrustation from the hard water, and they wouldn't have contributed to lead in the water supply in a meaningful way. Anyway, drinking vessels get a pass for driving the Romans insane. But there are plenty of cups, plates, serving platters, coffee pots, and heck, even table linens in history that have been absolutely 100% noble, completely deadly. I'm Tamara McNeil, and this is She Eats Rations. Well, look who's here! I haven't seen you in many a year. If I, I knew you were coming, I'd have baked a cake, baked a cake, baked a cake. If I knew you were coming, I'd have baked a cake. How'd you do? How'd you do? How'd you do? Had you dropped me a letter, I'd have hired a band. My gran used to like natural oddities. She'd collect burls of wood that looked like a face, or stones that were shaped like animals, or anything in the natural world that was a little irregular. In her collection of oddities, she had this small ivory-colored stone that was about as big as half a domino, which is kind of an odd size and an odd shape for a stone. But the weirdest thing about it was that it had this sort of hairy look to it. My uncle, who was a biologist with a passing familiarity with all things geological, once cast an eye over her collection and stopped when he came to the weird, hairy square rock. That's asbestos, he said. You probably shouldn't have that in your house. I'm pretty sure she kept it anyway. The thing about asbestos that's so interesting is not that it's a rock that doesn't burn. That's how most rocks behave. The interesting thing about asbestos is that it's a rock that can be woven. The fibers in the asbestos sample I saw were almost like boar hair, kind of bristly, and being hair-like, they could be picked apart and put back together again, which means that you could make textiles from it. And as soon as people figured that out, they were weaving it. The Finns have been integrating asbestos into their pottery since about 1900 BC. After all, asbestos improves the longevity of a pot that's going to be spending a long time in embers. But we hear about it being woven from the Romans and the Greeks. Pliny, in particular, likes it. He calls it emianthus and tells us all about it in his natural history. Asbestos napkins, it seems, were a practical sophistication. He says laundering is a cinch. You just throw your napkin in the fire when dinner is done, and voila, all clean. This, it seems, is a party piece the Romans gleaned from the Persians, who liked their asbestos table linens too. But the most famous historical example of asbestos table linen can be found in Charlemagne's court. Apparently he had a magnificent asbestos tablecloth, specifically for feast days, at the end of the meal, the story goes, he would personally pull the tablecloth from the table and throw it into the fire for the amusement of his guests. 
we kept making asbestos materials. And then, in 1924, a pathologist in the UK conclusively linked asbestos to the death of a woman who spun fibers for a living. It caused something of a stir. And while medical professions began to take a hard look at the effect of asbestos on humans who handled it, they were still merrily turning out asbestos textiles, crockery contaminated, or enhanced, as they might have thought of it, with asbestos. This is especially true of places like Australia and Canada, where asbestos mining was a big business. Incidentally, Canada had the world's largest asbestos mine until 2012. It was located, fittingly, in the town of Asbestos, Quebec. In the 20th century, asbestos was turned into everything, from table linens to aprons to oven mitts to oven-safe crockery. We were producing new and exciting asbestos textiles and pottery until the late 1980s. After that, it got to be hard to dispose of the stuff, and people were getting worried about the health effects, so the market took a nosedive. These days, you can't buy asbestos linen off the shelf in your local market, but you might accidentally pick it up in your grandma's attic. Asbestos might be a big no-no in the modern world, and maybe it's hard to imagine how we ever really thought it was a good idea to use the stuff in the first place. But it's by no means the worst example of deadly dinnerware. No. Next, we're going to talk about the problem of radioactive plates. And cups. And... Well, everything. More on that after the break. I touch your lips and all at once the sparks go flying. Those devil lips that know so well the art of lying. And though I see the danger, still the flame grows higher. I know I must surrender to your kiss of fire. Hey friends, just a quick interruption here to send a shout out to sponsors Colleen, Teresa, David, and Nikki, who've backed the show and have been super enthusiastic about it. Thank you guys. I also want to say many thanks to Jason Dethridge, who's doing the sound editing and mixing and all the things that make me sound like I'm recording in a studio and not from the inside of my closet. He's doing it for free too, can you believe it? Thanks again to Colleen, Teresa, David, and Nikki, and Jason, friends of the podcast. And if you want to sponsor She Eats Rations, go check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash tammacneil. That's T-A-M-M-A-C-N-E-I-L. Now back to the show. Don't pity me. Don't pity me. Welcome back. We were talking about deadly dinnerware. We talked a little about asbestos table linen, and now we're considering food service stuff, specifically uranium ware. Back in the 1880s, glassmakers working on fancy glass dishes for a market seemingly insatiable for knickknacks and filigree discovered that they could make glass dishes that were both opaque and brilliantly colored. The magic ingredient was uranium. This was back before people had any idea about radioactivity and half-lives and stochastic health effects. All the manufacturers knew was that they'd found a way to make something new and exciting, and the market absolutely loved it. You've probably heard of uranium glass, though you may have heard it under different names. Carnival glass, depression glass, and jadeite are all variations on the theme. Uranium glass was most popular in the 1880s to the 1920s-ish, though it did hang on through the depression, hence depression glass. It wasn't until the government sequestered all the uranium in the market that manufacturers stopped making uranium glass, and that was around the Second World War. Jadeite, depression glass, uranium glass, they all have a very specific look. They range in color from pale yellow to brilliant green, and that's the color that's provided by the uranium. And the vividness of the color is really striking. It never fades. If you think you might have a genuine piece of uranium ware in your cupboard, you can find out by holding it under a black light. If it glows, there's uranium in there. 
Uranium ware does have a radioactive substance in its makeup, but for the most part, it's a small amount of uranium, vanishingly small. It sort of tops out around 2% for most pieces, although some are higher. Apparently some have been tested about 25%, but I think those are very few and far between. Most of these collector's items are generally considered safe, even if you amass a bunch of them together. But uranium doesn't just make glass green, it makes crockery red too. And it turns out those glazes are a lot more dangerous than originally believed. Back in the 1920s, everything went spare. And by that I mean people were sick of the floral flouncing that was the hallmark of Art Nouveau, and the clutter and chaos of the over-decorated Victorian parlor. They longed for something simple, modern, streamlined. Like their stylistic predecessors, the Georgians, they stripped away the gigas and ornaments, curling armchair legs and clawed divan feet, and instead they created things that were streamlined, clean, spacious. Unlike their stylistic predecessors, the Georgian, they were looking ahead to the future rather than back to ancient Greece and Rome. Plus, they had good indoor lighting, and even rather middle-class, modest homes or apartments could be bright, streamlined, and modern. With the Depression in the 1920s and into the 30s, what had started off as a celebration of modernity went from streamlined to kind of spare. Many of the details and flourishes of Art Deco were quietly dropped, but one thing did remain. Color. By the late 1930s, as the economy improved and people began looking to decorate rather than just get by, they started looking for the best bang for their buck. And what better than a new set of dining ware? Something you'll see every day. Something that could be purchased piece by piece to suit the size of the family and the housewife's budget? Even better. What could be better than fiesta ware? There was just one little thing. Red Fiesta Ware was radioactive. Like, really radioactive. Like Carnival Glass and Depression Glass, uranium was the primary color agent in Red Fiesta Ware. This wasn't a big deal at the time. Heck, everybody's red pottery was made with uranium. It's what created the vivid orange-red we think of when we think of picnic sets from the 1950s. Fiesta Ware was a big hit. From the 1930s to the mid-40s, the red was by far the biggest seller. But then the war came and the U.S. government seized control of the company's stockpile of uranium for the war effort, so the red glaze had to be discontinued, which drove up the desirability of the dishes. After the war, natural uranium was hard to come by, but depleted uranium? That was another matter altogether. After all the atomic testing, there was plenty of depleted uranium to go around, so Lachlan bought it up and glazed the insanely popular red fiesta ware with that until it fell out of popularity. And then in 1972, they tried using a new formula. The company stopped producing Fiesta Ware altogether in 1973. So if you have red Fiesta Ware in your home, there's a good chance it's at least a little radioactive. As it happens, almost all the colors used in Fiesta Ware emit a low-level radioactivity, but the red ware is by far the most radioactive of the bunch. Radioactivity occurs all over the place in nature. Granite, for example, is pretty radioactive all on its own. If you have a collection of red fiesta ware and a granite countertop and you want to scare yourself, maybe rent yourself a Geiger counter. Incidentally, if you do have red fiesta ware, the current advice is not to store food in or on it. Maybe keep it in the china cabinet. One last thing about all these pieces of deadly dinnerware. It took a long, long time for us to stop manufacturing them, and plenty of them are still available to collectors. The ones with the 2% uranium, and the ones with the 25% uranium. A few years ago, I was browsing an online jeweler's shop. This jeweler makes fantastic tiny Febreze from old Victorian and mid-century items like 
clocks, radios, watches, things like that. There, under her news and updates section, I saw urgent notice for previous customers. So, of course, I clicked on over to see what was what. Turned out she'd recently had a visit from the authorities, who had noticed radioactivity emitting from some of the packages she was shipping out. Upon inspection, her shop was positively glowing with radioactivity. And when they went hunting for the source, they found it in a box of glow-in-the-dark watches from World War I. These, it turns out, are infamous watches. The glow-in-the-dark effect was achieved with radioactive paint, and the women who painted the watches licked the brushes to get a fine tip. At the time, radium was touted as a health product, with radium-infused water, food, even condoms available on the market. But the radium girls, as they came to be known, were one of the earliest cases of radiation poisoning to come to the public eye. They had painted thousands and thousands of watches, and the watches they had painted were still, in the early 2000s, floating around flea markets and eBay and highly radioactive. So take care out there, is what I'm saying. See, it's not just deadly dinnerware. We ate and drank a lot of gross, unhealthy, or downright dangerous stuff back in the day. Imagine serving your radium water in your brand new red Fiesta Ware pitcher to guests who were nibbling sweets from the contrasting, vivid green carnival glass plate. It's practically drinking defrutum. You know, I collect old cookbooks and cookware, and the same way my gram used to have a piece of asbestos in her china cabinet till her dying day, I'm pretty sure I have something deadly kicking around my place too. It's probably not an asbestos textile or a radioactive cup, but who knows? Maybe it is. Maybe I should get myself a Geiger counter. I don't think I will. Ignorance is bliss. Look who's here! I haven't seen you in many a year! If I, I knew you were coming, I'd have baked a cake. Baked a cake. Baked a cake. If I knew you were coming, Before I wrap it up, one more shout out to sponsors for this episode Colleen, Teresa, David, and Nikki. Thank you so much for supporting me on Patreon and slinging ideas for episodes on Twitter. That's it for me today. I'm Tamara McNeil, and you can find me at Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can reach me at tamtheraider at gmail.com if you want, which would be great. The theme music is If I Knew You Were Coming Out of Big to Cake, sung by Eileen Barton, and technical production is by the fantastic Jason Deathridge.